Well, please, as you uh, sit down, take hold of a Bible. There should be one near to where you're sitting, and turn to page 927 to the book of Jonah. Page 927. Um, help me, and I, I think it will help you if you've got that open so that you can follow it through. Last year, the Romanian government decided that there were far too many zeros on their banknotes which is a bit of a shame because I quite enjoyed being a millionaire for a week last summer. Uh, Our largest banknote, I think, is a £50 note. Uh, Theirs uh, was a million lei, which I think is roughly around £28, something like that, although Dave will correct me if that's wrong. So last July they decided they needed to knock four zeros off their banknotes. At the moment they're still running both currencies at the same time so shopping is a sort of interesting challenge to one's mental arithmetic now it strikes me that when it comes to the topic of salvation the reality of salvation that it has become devalued for many of us both for those who are outside the church but also for those who are inside Uh, for some of us we don't value God's salvation because we don't understand it it's just a bit of a nonsense It's a bit of a joke, really. For others, we don't value salvation because, well, familiarity has somehow bred contempt. And either way, Jonah 2 is is a reminder of the seriousness of the human problem in order that we might understand the wonder of the divine solution. Unless you see how desperate your plight is, you will never understand how wonderful God's rescue is. Rebel hearts need to understand that it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. For it is only then that we will wonder afresh at the greatness of God our Saviour. Now, if you were here last week, you'll remember the extraordinary opening of this remarkable book, Uh, The word of the Lord comes to Jonah, chapter 1, verse 2. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. You see, that would have made the first readers of this book sit up and take notes. Preach in Nineveh. What an extraordinary thing to ask a Judean prophet to do. Now, preach on home turf to rebellious Israel, well, that's one thing... But preach in Nineveh, a city at the very heart of a hostile and pagan nation? Well, that's quite another, isn't it? You see, the growing influence and aggression of the Assyrian Empire to the north threatened the very existence of God's people, and yet God calls one of Israel's prophets to take the gospel there. Now, when you understand that, Jonah's response in chapter 1 seems quite reasonable, doesn't it? See, imagine for a minute those people in your family or in your place of work or or in your community. Imagine those who seem the most hostile to Christianity. Not just the many who are indifferent. No, imagine those for whom the very mention of Christianity is about as welcome as George Galloway visiting 10 Downing Street. 
I was really going to set the cat among the pigeons. Now imagine that first thing tomorrow morning, God wants you to explain to them the gospel. Because their wickedness has come up before God. What would you do? You'd do what Jonah did, wouldn't you? You'd get the cheapest online flight you could from EasyJet and you'd head to the other side of the world. Or maybe you've got more courage than me. Now, of course, from another perspective, Jonah's response was unimaginable folly. You see, where do you think you are going to run to if, chapter 1, verse 9, if the Lord is the God of heaven? Who made the sea and the land? Where do you think you're going to run to? Oh, you can run, Jonah. But you cannot hide. Not in a world that God himself has made. Now, the irony, of course, is that Jonah knows that. He knows that God made the whole world. But sometimes what we know to be true doesn't make any difference to the way we live. You can know that the gospel is for the nations, but you can still leave the task to the mission committee. Well, look at the end of chapter 1. At the end of chapter 1 comes one of the great surprises of the book. The Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. Now, of course, as we were considering last week, the surprise is not the possibility of the fish. The surprise is rather the purpose of the fish. You see, you suspect that for the God who made the sea and the land, the God who made the billions of galaxies and the billions of atoms in our universe, the one who made everything that is visible and invisible, you suspect that for the God who made that, Providing such a fish was a mere afternoon's dabbling with a little bit of Play-Doh. Surprise is not the possibility of the fish. Surprise is the purpose of the fish. See, if you were reading this story for the first time, you wouldn't automatically think that chapter 1, verse 17 was good news, would you? Now, chapter 1, a violent storm, verse 4... The lot falls to Jonah, verse 7. The sea grows even wilder, verse 13. Jonah is thrown overboard, verse 15. This is not a good day. And then verse 17, a fish swallows him up. Doesn't sound like good news to me. Sounds like exceedingly bad news. But the purpose of the fish was not to punish. It was to save Jonah deserved death. But God gave him life. Jonah deserved death, but God gave him life. Now, sometimes it is ignorance that prevents us understanding the gospel. Only last week a friend asked me, what did the the bread and the wine mean? Why is it that Christians remembered Jesus' death? Now, she didn't claim to be a Christian. But the truth is, you can go to church for years 
and years and still not understand why Jesus died. He died your death. He died your death, the death that you deserve because you, like me, haven't loved the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. He died your death so that you might know his life. The New Testament puts it like this, God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now sometimes it is ignorance that prevents us from understanding the gospel. And of course for some of us, for most of us here this morning I suspect we've known that truth for many, many years. But even if for you familiarity hasn't bred contempt, is it possible that it has still dulled your wonder? Sunday by Sunday you find yourself going through the motions, don't you? And if you're honest, part of you wonders what's so amazing about grace? What's so amazing about grace? And so the terrifying story of Jonah. The terrifying story of Jonah, for in the midst of the Lord's discipline, Jonah is reminded that God was his saviour. That was a reminder that came in the very eye of the storm, when life was as difficult as it could possibly be when he was brought as low as he possibly could be brought. It was then that Jonah saw God's salvation more clearly than he had ever seen it before. You know, sometimes God needs to strip away everything in our lives. False security, self-confidence, foolish pride. Sometimes God needs to strip away everything in our lives so that we can really see what matters. God is your saviour. That is enough. When you are as low as you can possibly go, then you see just how far the Lord has lifted you up. You see, Jonah went down to Joppa, chapter 1, verse 3. He went down below deck, verse 5. He went down to the depths of the grave, chapter 2, verse 2. Now, he knew he was separated from the very presence of God, verse 4. He was banished from God's sight. In the end, he went down to the roots of the mountains. Verse 5, the engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth barred me in forever. 
You see, Jonah's experience confronted him as it confronts us with the fearful and terrible finality of God's justice. Why? So that we will tremble and marvel at divine grace. End of verse 6. But you, you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. Remember, God is your saviour. Not ultimately in a divinely appointed fish, but in a divinely condemned saviour. One whose experience of the terror and awfulness of death brought life to the justly condemned. See, if you understand that, then you sing, as we will at the end of our service, when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away our sin, then sings my soul. My Saviour, God to thee, how great thou art. How great thou art. God is our Saviour. Secondly, God is our sovereign Saviour. God is our sovereign Saviour. One of the most striking things in the book of Jonah is the behind-the-scenes insight that the writer gives into the workings of a sovereign God. See, life is not, as Shakespeare's Macbeth put it, a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Now, of course, such a view is given a veneer of academic credibility in the fundamentalist propaganda of, say, a Richard Dawkins, that rolled out again this week on television. In his book, Out of Eden, he concludes... The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Makes you wonder why it gets out of bed in the morning. Not according to the book of Jonah. God's rule, not genetic randomness, stands at the heart of the universe. And God orders his world. God orders his world so that people might know that he is a sovereign saviour. See again, verse 4 of chapter 1. It is the Lord who sent a great wind on the sea. It's the Lord who sent a great wind on the sea. At verse 7, the lots were cast and the lot fell on Jonah. Verse 17, the Lord provided a great fish. Chapter 2, verse 3. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas. Verse 6, it was you. You brought my life up from the pit. God is 
sovereign. Sometimes, of course, it is immensely painful and difficult and near impossible to really believe that. To see the mess in our lives, the tragedies that we face. It is nevertheless important to remember and ever true that God's universe is ruled, not random. And God orders his world so that people might know that he is a sovereign saviour. Even for them. Paul puts it like this in the New Testament. From one man God made every nation of people that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that people would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. God is our sovereign saviour. You see, you thought you were looking for God, but then you discovered that God was looking for you. Now, maybe that's a discovery you made more years ago than you care to remember. But maybe it's a realisation that is only just beginning to dawn. You thought you were looking for God. And now you're beginning to wonder whether God might be looking for you. Or maybe you've made some friends at a toddler group, or you've got to know a Christian at work. Or you've discovered that one of your neighbours goes to church. Or you've started going along to Friday Club. And, and now somehow you're here. And you know that God is speaking to you through the words of the Bible. And it is the most exciting and terrifying and challenging experience of your life. How incredible to know that God is a sovereign saviour that he has in the death of Jesus Christ brought your life up from the pit and he has so ordered the events of your life that you might see that that is for you God is our sovereign saviour You see, in the Bible, God's sovereign rule is always the grounds for the believer's unshakable confidence. The security of your salvation doesn't depend on you, on what you've done or you haven't done, on what you feel or don't feel. Sometimes our faith feels strong. Sometimes we feel close to God. Sometimes we are confident that Christianity really is true. But then at other times in our life we feel like we are only just clinging on. And God feels very far away. And a hundred and one questions fill our minds and, and hearts, troubling questions, questions of doubt. The security of your salvation doesn't depend on what you do, but on what God has done. Jesus said that he came 
to seek and to save the lost. He came to seek and to save the lost. He said, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them from my hand. No one. God is our sovereign saviour and the God who began a good work in you will complete it. He will not let you go. Now, of course, there is a right confidence and a wrong presumption. The fact that God is sovereign in no way diminishes the responsibility that you and I have before God. We need to recognise the, the culpability of our unbelief and disobedience and the absolute necessity of our own personal trust in Christ. You see, Jonah was clearly responsible for his unbelief and disobedience, wasn't he? Why else did God pursue him? Why else did God discipline him? I don't imagine that you can sin and get away with it. God loves you too much to allow that to happen. We are responsible for our unbelief and our disobedience. And we also need to recognise the absolute necessity of our own personal trust in Christ. God is our sovereign saviour. But our trust in him must be real and personal. See, chapter 2, the end of verse 6. You can know that God brings lives up from the pit. You can know that. But you have to trust that he did it for you. In New Testament language, you have to repent and believe the good news. You have to say with Jonah, you brought my life up from the pit. O Lord, my God. Remember, God is our saviour. God is our sovereign saviour. And thirdly and finally, remember God is our sole saviour, our only saviour. God is our sole saviour. Now salvation may be ridiculed by many as the misguided preoccupation of the religious, but the pantheon of contemporary secularism is still full of competing deities, whether people acknowledge it or not. People are still looking to the various gods of our age to save them whether it's uh, technology or celebrity or wealth. So, for example, Professor John Gray of the London School of Economics comments like this. Today, for the mass of humanity, science and technology embody miracle, mystery and authority. Science promises that the most ancient human fantasies will at last be realised. Sickness and ageing will be abolished. Scarcity and poverty will be no more. The species will become immortal. Now, of course, if science and technology is not your thing, then maybe celebrity salvation is. 
the Learning and Skills Council published its survey of 16 to 19 year olds in England this week made for interesting reading of those surveyed amongst that age bracket 16 to 19 year olds so those surveyed 10% said that they would drop out of education for a shot at TV fame because it was a great way to earn money without skills or qualifications as Pamela Anderson of Baywatch fame put it I just want to do the least work in the least time and make the most money like anybody else, right? See, the writer of this book says that such gods are, chapter 2, verse 8, worthless idols. Or as one translation puts it, empty nothings. Empty nothings. And those who cling to such worthless idols, those who cling to such empty nothings, forfeit the grace that could be theirs. See, the empty nothings that we cling to cannot meet the greatest need of each human being. The idols that seduce us cannot put us right with the God who made us. Only God himself can do that in the salvation that he has secured in Jesus Christ. He is our sole saviour, our only saviour. Salvation is found in no one else. No one. For there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. So I wonder this morning, do you believe that? Do you believe that God is your saviour? Do you believe that God is your sovereign saviour? Do you believe that God is your sole saviour? Because if you do, then you will feel the challenge of verse 10, chapter 2, won't you? And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. And you're thinking, how is that a challenge? Is it some sort of anti-emetic advice about the perils of mixing your prophets and your plankton? Well, not quite is actually one of the central challenges of this book. You see, chapter 2, verse 10, Jonah is back where he started. And the word of the Lord, as we will see next week, is about to come to him a second time. And the challenge for Jonah, and for us, is this. If God is my saviour, then I have to be involved somehow in taking the gospel to the nations, don't I? How could it possibly be otherwise? If he is sovereign, and if there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved, then I have both the motivation and the confidence to tell other people about Jesus. In Sheffield, in Yorkshire, and even to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Almighty God, we pray that you would write these truths on our hearts, that we might 
know that in Christ you offer us salvation that through him you lift our lives from the pit may we know that you are a sovereign saviour that you are the only saviour for this world and may that confidence bring to us our own personal assurance and a great desire to see friends and family and even the nations one to you for your name's sake Amen